at the holidays, at the holidays, while the merry bells keep ringing, may your every wish come true. if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world. I'm your host, Reverend Campbell. It's great to have you. It is December 20th, and as of today, we have 76,901,568 worldwide cases of COVID-19, with 1,696,419 deaths. And I got a great show for you this week. That's right. And the devil's advocate, I'm going to be asking the question, is meritocracy and might is right a satanic pipe dream? In the infernal informant he may have found the key to the origins of life so why have so few heard of him and i'm going to close it out with a bit of a discussion eli roth's history of horror this is a good good series and we're going to get into it just wanted to share those i've been messing with those holiday photos so i thought it'd be fun to show them to you <laughs> hope you appreciate them it's meant to be fun um I got an email from a guy, or not an email, but I got a, a message about a post to uh, last week's episode about someone um, calling me out about my political ideology, right? And how I should not even bother because I talk like I'm a 14-year-old kid when it comes to um, politics. And it's interesting to me that whenever I talk about politics that's in contrast to what other people enjoy like viewpoints that they have then i'm an asshole and i don't know what the fuck i'm talking about but whenever i share political ideas with those who do agree with my political ideas then i know exactly what i'm talking about and everything's right in the world kind of funny how that works out and this is what really frustrates me is because if you're watching this show and you're not a satanist then you should be coming into it with even more open of a mind because clearly you don't know anything about Satanism. And so you, you know, you, you should be opening yourself to what other Satanists may think. If you're coming into this as a Satanist, then you should definitely have an open mind because you understand that we all have different perspectives on everything. No one agrees with everything that every other Satanist agrees with because this is not a monolith. Satanism is about the individual. And I'm not trying to convince people of any political ideology that I may personally hold or ideas that I may personally share. I'm simply sharing my ideas because that's what this podcast is about. A modern, uh, a satanic perspective of a modern world. My satanic perspective about our world. That's it. And if you don't like it, well, you can leave. This is your choice to tune in. And if you do appreciate it, even if you don't agree with it, 
well, then I welcome you to stay and enjoy. But the second you start calling me a child, well, how am I supposed to ever hear anything you say and appreciate it or take it seriously? Don't resort to ad hominem attacks when you can just as easily share your ideas, just like you're asking me to share mine. Now, that being said, I'm still going to talk about politics. <laughs> Not this episode, just because there's other things that I want to talk about. But it's in the mail. <laughs> so, sorry, <laughs> but I'm not. Um, Gary, how you doing? Thanks for joining live. Harlow, how are you? William, what's up, man? Uh, Joaquin, good to see you. Satan Chris. <laughs> Satani. Um, Santa Chris, good to see you, man. Uh, Dallas, what's up, man? It's been a bit. Dog, how you doing? Sean, thanks for joining. Jeff, thanks for joining, man. Uh, Lazarus, what's up, man? He has risen. Was that the one that rose? Lazarus? I can't remember. Or was Lazarus the leper? Fuck. I don't know my Bible stories. Sorry. Um, Jeff, what's up, man? Thanks for joining. All right, all right. Um, yeah, it's funny because I... When Obama was president, I was arguing about the stupid shit he was doing. And so people called me a conservative and called me uh, a far-right nut job. When Trump's in office and I'm complaining about the stupid shit he's doing, people call me a Democrat and a leftist. <laughs> well, which is it? I'm either simply sharing my thoughts about whomever happens to be in office, not taking a side, just sharing the realities of the situation, or I'm a rightist or a leftist. But it can't be both. So you got to choose, people. <laughs> However you're going to frame me, make a choice and just stick with it. Because I'm not changing the way I cover these things, these topics that the world throws at me. I've got to give it an honest, honest jab, right? I mean, the truth is, is Trump is horrible. He has always been horrible. He is an intellectual black hole. He is the stupidest president we've ever had. He is a failure. He is a loser. So if you like him, you like a loser. That doesn't mean you're a loser. It means you like a loser. Now those are objective realities that you can either accept or you can come up with some other excuse for why you like him. But that's your problem, not mine. Now, I liked Al Gore in 2000. The election was literally stolen from him, as evidenced by the recounting of the votes after he conceded. But I liked him. He lost. So I liked the loser at that time. Yeah, I liked the loser. Did it make me a loser? In heart, maybe. <laughs> but not in reality. Like, he just lost the election. Just like this president lost this election. You can make up whatever bullshit you want about it, but those are the facts. So I love it when people are saying, the truth is out there if you just look for it. Well, then present the fucking truth then. If it's out there and the courts weren't shown it when the cases were brought to them, it must be a mystery. Like, God, he's out there. I just can't prove it, but it's out there. You just have to have faith. Because you got to have the faith, the faith, the faith. <sighs> Losers. All right. But then I'm just being a child. <laughs> Fucking stupid. Let's talk about some serious shit. Let's talk about some satanic ideas. This might ruffle some feathers. 
but I believe in questioning all things. And that includes my religion. So. I'm not losing my religion. I'm getting like all these 80s songs in my head. Losing my religion. Let's do a little devil's advocate. I'm going to throw up an image here. I appreciate you guys tuning in early. I know it's, you know, you, you got a day and if you have some time to, to join me, I appreciate it. But wait, what image did I have for this? Oh yeah, here we go. Just a fun, you know, statue bold image. I was thinking about this the other day. Um, I can't remember what I was watching that spurred this idea in my head, but typically we as Satanists champion the idea of might being right and the concept of meritocracy, right? We believe that you should be judged on your own merits for what you bring to the table. My time in the military proved to me that that is a pipe dream, that that is not a reality. It's more important who you smooch, <laughs> smooch? Who you, uh, who you kiss up to than it is what you actually bring to the table. Because you can be the most productive member of a squad, and the person that gets the promotion is the person that just is better relations. And that's just the way it works. It's not just the military, though. The corporate world is the exact same way. Um, let me, I'm sort of jumping ahead of myself. Let, let's dive into what the definition of meritocracy is, if we can. And Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines it this way. A system, organization, or society in which people are chosen and moved into positions of success, power, and influence on the basis of their demonstrated abilities and merit. And it's funny because the origin of meritocracy was actually a derogatory reference to the way that England was um, handling its uh, uh, academia. And so it wasn't a positive thing at all. It turned into a positive thing when the West latched onto the world, the word, and uh, thought that it was this wonderful American idea. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You are you have your destiny in your own hands, and if you just work hard enough, other people are going to recognize it. Anecdotally, maybe sometimes it happens. More often than not, you got to know someone, and this forced me to start thinking about this idea of meritocracy. Even amongst Satanists, it's not a thing. Satanists judge each other based on what everyone else judges you on. How you look, how you speak, how you present yourself, what you like, what you don't like, who you're friends with, who you're not friends with, who's uh, following your pages, or who's not following your pages, just as shallow as any other fucking asshole out there. We, we pretend like we're a lot better, but the truth is, well, maybe we're a lot worse. We are our own worst enemies in a lot of cases. That's the problem. That's the thing that happens when you get a lot of religious people in one area. It doesn't matter what religion it is. Arguably, it's just whenever you get people together in general. But because we're saying this, because this is a standard podcast, that's the perspective I'm going to take from it. 
So amongst ourselves, you may have the best product out there, but if someone just doesn't like your delivery or they just don't like your opinions, well, then you're not going to rise to the top. You're not going to be recognized as being as good as you are. And they're going to actively work against you. I know this personally. So if meritocracy doesn't even exist within Satanists, how can it exist in the world in a form that we would champion? How can it be an idea that we strive for when we don't even practice it? So is it just a pipe dream? I want to explore this for a second. We live in a quid pro quo society, right? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. My time in the military, as I said earlier, showed me that it was more important who you know than what you can do. And the corporate sector, again, is no different. Our president, for example, put his family in positions of authority, not because of their merit, but because he wanted people that he knew in the White House giving him advice. They didn't know shit about shit, but they were in positions of authority. Um, if you suck up to your managers or leaders, you are more likely to be promoted. That's just a reality. The perception is more important than the reality. Okay, so if we understand that, we as Satanists actually have tools for things like this, right? Promotions do not always go the most to the most qualified, but rather the most noticed or connected. So what happens if merit is granted... I'm, I'm glancing at my notes, just so you know. Uh, if merit is granted to those that we directly oppose... Does meritocracy hold up as a concept if we disagree with the fundamental actions that it should hold? So, for example, um, if you are on the political right and you're seeing uh, free speech being quashed by the far left and you're talking about how they're a detriment to society and they're bringing the culture down um, and they're just damaging the, the core of what America is. They're winning. Isn't that meritocracy in action? Isn't the stifling of free speech because it's happening and it's successful, isn't that proof that meritocracy works? Or do we say that, no, that doesn't count because that's not, that's not my form of meritocracy. I don't want that end. And so it can't be that that's the better idea. Is your acknowledgement of meritocracy relevant to it working, to it being a reality? Or again, is it just a pipe dream that has never worked? Okay, Islamic Judeo-Christians were, and arguably, in some cases, are very much in control of our political system from the 70s, arguably earlier, until now. Uh, if they control the political outlook in a given party, isn't that justified simply because it's meritorious? That is meritocracy in action. They took control as Christians, as uh, uh, Abrahamic religious individuals, doesn't that mean that they're right? That they deserve to be in control and power if they can wrestle it away? If might makes right, and they're the ones in that position, does meritocracy follow 
And is that right? Or because we don't agree with it, does meritocracy not work? Is it not really a thing anymore? Do you see what I'm getting at? It's about perspective. Meritocracy is based on the same frame that we Satanists base good and evil off of. Good is what you like. Evil is what you don't like. Meritocracy in action is what you agree with. And it's not when you don't agree with it. It is that malleable. And so if it is, in fact, just whether or not we want to recognize it, how can we ever say it's a thing in the first place and be serious about it? So earlier I had mentioned that we Satanists have tools to help us along the way. And I'm speaking specifically to satanic magic. That's broken into lesser magic and greater magic. Lesser magic allows you to immediately manipulate people in the moment. Sorry, I'm blowing up and I don't know why. Uh, my phone. Um, sorry. Now I'm losing my damn train of thought. Thanks, fucking phone. Uh, so where's lesser magic come into it, right? If you game the system through lesser magic, do you truly merit the promotion or praise? So this is the other side of it. If meritocracy is based on who you know and not what you can do, then we can use lesser magic to our favor or in our favor in order to get that merit, right? To get that promotion, to get that girl, to have our project promoted on top of everyone else's. But if we have to game the system, is that meritocracy really? It's not your project or your value. It's how much you can convince someone of your project or your value. They are different. They're connected, but they are different. And so is meritocracy the way Satanists see it? A natural order that should just happen on its own, whether we agree with the outcome or not, or is it something that we game? In which case, it's going to depend on your culture. It's going to depend on the society you live on. It's going to depend on the time in the world that you live and what ideas are accepted and what aren't. And that will determine whether or not a meritocracy of ideas or actions is even possible. Is might simply mass influence and or cunning rather than physical dominance? The strength of ideas can alter a society. Is that strength of ideas meritocracy in action when it goes against your given ideas? Especially when it goes in contrast to the carnal nature of mankind. How do we as Satanists recognize meritocracy? When it is based on spiritual pipe dreams. I mean, these are ideas that we have to rationalize somehow. We're faced with these ideas every single day. And so we have to come up with some way of coping with these contrasting values as Satanists. Or we're just pretending. We're just, we're, we're saying one thing and acting in contrast to it. And I know some of you do that. I do it too from time to time. But the realities are there. All right, so let me see what you guys say here. 
Um, thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate that dog. Uh, we've always strived for ideas that we can't quite reach. Pipe dreams are still dreams, still aims. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it for sure. Great leaders make dreams a reality. Um, okay, but we have a lot of leaders that Satanists are in total contrast with. So are we still championing them? Championing them? The issue with judging merit is that you are always going to approach it from a subjective perspective. In sense, those who can perceive lesser magic are more deserving of merit than those who are good at your oh, practice lesser magic are uh, more deserving than those who are good at their jobs. Interesting. So that's, again, that's another approach. So saying that someone may be the best, most um, qualified person for the promotion, but if you come in with a little lesser magic who's not as qualified, you deserve it more because you have this extra tool to convince them. Now, the job itself is going to suffer because you're just not better than the other person. But does that matter? At some point, meritocracy has to equal your deliverables, right? Like you have to meet what you're selling or else you're going to be seen as a total phony. Eventually, it all comes out in the wash, right? So is it good enough? Is that what we talk about when we're talking about a meritocracy? We're not talking about the best, just the most competent that could convince people that they were better than they are. <laughs> I mean, these are things we have to talk about, right? We have to consider. You have to apply real-world objective standards. Technically, it is, but such an underhanded attempt. Uh, none of this is static. We can all be moving towards what we think it meritorious at any given time with things falling and rising as needed. Uh, yes, the answer is yes to both the scenarios, Jeff says. So I, I, do, I do like these ideas because... And I, I, it may just be me. I may be solipsistic in this. But I think we as individuals traditionally like to think of the idea that the best person for the job will get the job. But instead, it's more like, or the best ideal will be recognized eventually. Or the best outcome, if it is of value and merit, will inevitably be achieved. But that's not what the world is telling us. That's just what we think of when we think of a meritocracy. We think, uh, if I can prove that I am the best artist, then I will be recognized as the best artist and given opportunities based on that. But that's not always the case. So if it is just a pipe dream, it's one worth striving for, I'd like to think, but we can't pretend that it's a reality that we can all live with because contrasting ideas, ideas that we abjectly refuse to accept, like God, have dominated human culture for thousands of years. Is that meritocracy? They were the strongest. They literally murdered those who dissented to them for hundreds of years. Does that make them right? It's still happening. It's happening to today. I think it's interesting. Influence, uh, influence alone can't create stability. Not stability, but definitely opportunity. Uh, yeah, so I, I was thinking about this and I was like, I can't think of one idea about Satanism that's hypocritical. And then I start meeting Satanists and seeing how they act in stark contrast to the religion. I'm like, okay, well then the people themselves are hypocrites. And I start thinking about meritocracy and the realities of meritocracy I think, 
okay, but then we start believing in pipe dreams. We're not actually believing in carnal realities anymore. So if we are hypocrites, the religion supports and props up ideas that cannot be garnered in reality, is the religion still valid? I mean, I think it is because <laughs> virtually every other idea of, in Satanism holds the test of time and is solid as fuck. But meritocracy and might is right. They don't stand scrutiny. Not when faced with reality. They just don't. We have to game it somehow. We have to manipulate it somehow. And that's because we're human. So if we look at them as Satanists, as ideas to strive for, well, then that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if we try to reference them as being absolutes, well, that's just not true. There's too much human influence for anything to be true all the time. It's just, it doesn't work that way. We are too convoluted as a species to allow that to happen. Um, if often seems that meritocracy is a poor translation of the theory of evolution into the social sphere. The problem is our social landscape is why, way harder to quantify than if a certain species dies. Uh, interesting. I like that idea, Sean. Uh, meritocracy is like free will. It doesn't exist, but we should act as though it does. Interesting. I like that idea. I agree. Don't understand supporting ideas you don't apply. Yeah. I mean, you gotta, you gotta square it somehow. This is another of those concepts that could be an entire episode by itself. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so it's a good idea to ask yourself and others these questions though. That's what, see, I've never heard anyone else asking stuff like this before. And that's why I want to do it because I think one, I like to question everything and that's just a very satanic thing to do. Um, but it, I, I find it entertaining how we, how we sort of bend over backwards to justify our own ideas, whether they're just or not, whether they're founded in truth or not. Um, we do have to somehow bend a little bit sometimes. And depending on what the topic is, you bend a little bit more than in other cases. But it's just something that we as humans are going to have to do because we fuck everything up. <laughs> if there's one truth to all of reality, it's that we humans mess everything up and we'll inevitably always do so because that's just what we do. That's what we're good at, right? So anyway, that's all I wanted to talk about. I hope you guys appreciate um, questioning stuff like this because I do and I'll continue to do so with you. Um, unless you stop tuning in and then I'll just do it to myself. <laughs> uh, let's do a little Infernal Informer. I've got an image here I'm going to throw up and then we'll dive into it. This is new to me. I did not know about this until I was skimming through Apple News. This is from nationalgeographic.com. He may have found the key to the origins of life. So why have so few heard of him? 
When biologist Tibor Gonti died on April 15, 2009, at the age of 75, he was far from a household name. Much of his career had been spent behind the Iron Curtain that divided Europe for decades, hindering the exchange of ideas. But if Gonti's theories had been more widely known during the communist era, he might now be acclaimed as one of the most innovative biologists of the 20th century. And that's because he devised a model of the simplest possible living organism, which he called the chemoton, that points to an exciting explanation of how life on Earth began. The origin of life is one of science's most perplexing mysteries, partly because it is several mysteries in one. What was Earth like when it was formed? What gases made up the air? Of the thousands of chemicals that living cells now use, which ones are essential, and which did those must-have substance, and when did those must-have substances arise? Perhaps the hardest question is the simplest. What was the first organism? For scientists attempting to recreate the spark of life, the chemoton offers an attractive target for experiments. If non-living chemicals can be made to self-assemble into a chemoton, that reveals a pathway by which life could have formed from scratch. Even now, some research groups are edging startlingly close to this model. And for astrobiologists interested in life beyond our planet, the chemoton offers a universal definition of life, one not tied to a specific chemical like DNA, but instead to an overall organizational model. Quote, I think Gonti had thought deeper about the fundamentals of life than anyone else I know, says biologist Eeyore's uh, Southmurray of the Center of Ecological Research in Tiany, Hungary. There is no scientific definition of life, though not for a want of trying. A 2012 paper identified 123 published definitions. It's challenging to write one that encompasses all life, but that excludes everything non-living with lifelike attributes, such as fire and cars. Many definitions say that living things can reproduce, but a rabbit or a human or a whale on its own cannot reproduce. In 1994, a NASA committee described life as a self-sustaining chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. The word system can mean an individual organism, a population, or an ecosystem. That gets around the reproduction problem, but at a cost. Vagueness. What few people knew at the time was that Gonti had offered another way two decades earlier. In 1971, Gonti tackled the problem head-on in a new book, The Principles of Life. Published only in Hungary, this book contained a few uh, of the first version of his chemoton model, which described what he saw as the fundamental unit of life. However, this early model of the organism was incomplete, and it would take him another three years to publish what is now regarded as the definitive version, again, only in Hungary, in a paper that was not available online. Globally, 1971 was something of a banner year for research in the origin of life. In addition to Gonti's underdog work, science put forth two other important theoretical models. The first came from an American theoretical biologist, Stuart Kaufman, who argued that living organisms must be able to copy themselves. In speculating about how this might have worked before cells formed, he focused on mixtures of chemicals. Suppose, he argued, that chemical A drives the formation of chemical B, which then drives the formation of chemical C, and so on, until something in the chain makes a fresh version of chemical A. After one cycle, two copies of each set of chemicals will exist. Given sufficient raw materials, another cycle will yield four copies and continue exponentially. Kaufman called such a group an 
autocatalytic set, as he argued that such groups of chemicals could have been the foundation of the first life, with the sets becoming more intricate until they produced a used, uh, produced and used a range of complex molecules such as DNA. In the second idea, German chemist Manfred Eigen described what he called the hypercycle, in which several autocatalytic, autocatalytic sets combine to form a single larger one. Eigen's variant introduces a critical, a critical, sorry, a crucial distinction. In a hypercycle, some of the chemicals are genes and therefore made of DNA or some other nucleic acid, while others are proteins that are made to order based on the information in the genes. This system could evolve based on changes, mutations, in the genes, a function that Kaufman's model lacked. Gonti had independently arrived at a similar notion, but he pushed it even further. He argued that two key processes must take place in every living organism. First, it has to build and maintain its body. That is, it needs a metabolism. Second, it has to have some sort of information storage system, such as gene or genes, that could be copied and passed on to offspring. Gonti's first version of his model was essentially two autocatalytic sets with distinct functions that combined to form a larger autocatalytic set, not so different from Eigen's hypercycle. However, the following year, Gonti was questioned by a journalist who pointed out a key flaw. Gonti assumed the two systems were based on chemicals floating in water, but left to themselves, they would drift apart and the chemoton would die. The only solution was to add a third system, an outer barrier to contain them. In living cells, this barrier is a membrane made of fat-like chemicals called lipids. The chemoton had to have such a barrier to hold itself together, and Gonti concluded that it had to have uh, that it had to be autocatalytic so that it could maintain itself and grow. Here, at last, we have the chemoton. Gonti's concept was the simplest possible living organism. Genes, metabolism, and membrane, all linked. The metabolism produces building blocks of the genes and membrane, and the genes exert an influence over the membrane. Together, they form a self-replicating unit, a cell so simple it could not only arise with relative ease on Earth, it could even account for alternative biochemistries on alien worlds. Gonti captured life really well, says synthetic biologist Nedliko Budisa of the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada. It was a revelation to read. However, Budisa discovered Gonti's work only around 2005. Outside of Eastern Europe, it remained obscure for decades, with only a few English translations on the market. The Chemoton appeared in English in 1987 in a paperback with a rather rough translation, says James Griesmer of the University of California, Davis. Few noticed, um, Zathmarie later gave the Chemoton pride of place in his 1995 book, The Major Transitions in Evolution, co-written by John Maynard Smith. This led to a new English translation of Gonti in 1971 book with additional materials released in 2003. But still the Chemoton remained niche, and six years later, Gonti was dead. And there's a reason why um, the scientific community did not want to latch on to his ideas when they did discover him. It was too simple. One thing that um, I think is the detriment to, and it's not just the scientific community, but archaeology, everything, physiology, I mean, everything um, that we research and study we tend to think things must be complex at the beginning in order to happen. 
But Gandhi is proving that no, simple, simple organisms can create complex ones. It doesn't have to be complex from the beginning. And it seems on its face the most obvious of answers. Yeah, of course. Random events, simple random events are more likely to occur than complex random events that would then create this hypercycle of evolution, of creation. But that's not where everyone was striving. And it's, it's interesting that not even the scientific community even knew about this. Outside of Hungary, did not know about this until 2000s. That's, a, that's insane. How many other discoveries are out there right now, but just subdued by lack of access to sharing those ideas? Even in today's internet age. It's an exciting possibility. It's also arguably here's something to freak everyone out. Most of the asteroids detected are by just people looking in the sky. That's right. The thing that can exterminate our planet, most of them are detected by casual observers, not by actual scientists. <laughs> That's terrifying. <laughs> like, something could be hurtling to crush our planet right now, and no one even knows about it because of the blackness of space. Because of our limited eyesight, you know, our perception skills, having been evolved on this planet underwater initially, are so poor. It's terrifying, but it's fascinating. Um, okay, I got a little bit more that I want to share and then we'll, I'll end it. Uh, but biochemists have recently found evidence that all the key chemicals of life can form from the same simple starting materials. In a study published in September, researchers led by Sarah Sumikuk, I'm sorry, I'm butchering these names, but they are very difficult. Um, then at the Polish Academy of Sciences in Warsaw, compiled a database using decades of experiments that sought to make life chemicals building blocks. Starting with just six simple chemicals like water and methane, uh, Simcook found it was possible to make tens of thousands of key ingredients, including the basic components of proteins and RNA. None of these experiments had yet uh, build a working chematon, that may simply uh, be because it, it's tricky, or it may be that Gandhi's exact formula is not quite how the first life worked. Still, what the chematon gives us is a way to think about life, uh, how life's components work together, with increasingly drives today's approaches to understanding how life got started. It is telling, adds um, Sath Marie, that citations of Gonti's work are now accumulating rapidly. Even the exact details differ, the current approach to the origin of life are much closer to what he had in mind, an integrated approach that is not focused on just one of life's key systems. Quote, life is not proteins. Life is not RNA. Life is not lipid bilayers, Griesmer says. What is it? It's all those things hooked together in the right organization. And I just, I love that it is 2020, almost 2021. We are knocking on the door of 2021. And we don't even know how life started on this planet. And we're looking for life on other planets. We don't even know how it started. So how do we truly know how to find it somewhere else? We think we know the building blocks, but again, we just think we do. We don't actually know. And I love that. The, the adventure of discovery is alive and well in 
our lifetime. And that should thrill you. Because if you just walk around or read anything online, you would think that everything's been figured out. But we're still just monkeys pulling ticks off of each other and eating them. <laughs> and that's exciting to me as a Satanist, as someone who questions and doesn't care if he doesn't have the answers, but just loves the exploration of possible answers. I love that. Ugh. I just wanted to share that. I hope you guys are okay with that. Um, people really underestimate the intelligence of Eastern Europeans. Yeah, no, for sure. We definitely do. And especially American Americans, we are, we're our own worst enemies because that concept of the American dream, though some can realize it and it is a great motivational idea, it can also stymie, it can poison our perspective of others because they're not Americans. They don't have the same opportunities. I am entitled, manifest destiny, right? Like we owe, we are owed something as Americans. That's the idea that Americans have about it themselves. And me too, I'm American. I bought into it. So if we can just, yeah, Occam's Racer, yeah. Shauna, <laughs> that's my wife. Um, if we can just uh, be open to being wrong and accepting of alternate ideas, we may actually be able to discover some truths in this damn world. If we can get out of our own way. But again, what do we humans do? fuck shit up <laughs> and that's just what we're good at all right um that's all i wanted to talk about in this infernal informant just a little bit of fun at least for me uh let's do a little creature feature and have a little bit more fun for me this is like masturbation All right, let me throw this image up and we will get into it. This is a bit of fun. Um, so AMC is putting out a series called Eli, Eli Roth's History of Horror. Eli Roth is a filmmaker. Um, he's a fan of the horror genre and he's made some really wonderful films. Hostel franchise, um, uh, The Green Inferno, which was great. It was a homage to Cannibal Holocaust. Um, is actually what the film in Cannibal Holocaust was being made. The documentary that the filmmakers, that the characters in the story were making was Green Inferno. And it was just a reference to um, what they called the Amazon. It was the Green Inferno. Um, anyway, this is uh, award-winning horror film director, writer, producer, and actor, Eli Roth, brings together the masters of horror, the storytellers and stars who define the genre to explore its biggest themes and reveal the inspirations and struggles behind its past and present. Each one-hour episode will take a viewer on a chilling exploration of how horror was evolved through the years and examine the genre's impact on society as well as delving into how horror maintains its fan base and why audiences are addicted to fear. Interviewees include Stephen King, Quentin Tarantino, Linda Blair, and many others. So season one I watched, I think, a year and a half ago, two years ago. Season two was just dropped on Shudder, and so I started watching it. If you're on AMC, they're both available freely as well. Um, this is great. So... Each season has, I think, like nine or ten episodes, and they're just one-hour explorations into a genre, 
in horror, right? So whether it's monsters or plagues, or, you know, just you can see what I'm getting at. But then they're not just talking about the films that sort of define that genre, like the groundbreaking films that really paid homage to that genre. They're talking about the people who made them. They're talking about what inspired them in the world to, to think about that in the time. And it's great. It's a social political exploration into a genre of filmmaking that has never gotten its due credit and that has influenced arguably from the, I mean, maybe even further back, but certainly from at least the 70s till today, it has influenced and affected us humans more than any other genre out there. Like it drives us. <laughs> like I, I love it so much. And this series, just in its little, you know, bite-size genre-exploring pieces, is just a marvel to uh, experience. Because you get to see a ton of filmmakers, a ton of celebrities and actors, um, just paying homage to what you already love. And so you get this weird shared passion between these people that you would always admired in film for what they've been able to do. But to see them sort of gush fanboy-like, like I do, that's a lot of fun for me. I really appreciate that. Um, and I just wanted to bring this up because if you do appreciate this, uh, the genre of horror, you, you already know this. But for those who don't, this is all influenced on human experience. Horror is a core element of what it means to be human, what we fear, what we're afraid of. It's our survival instinct in our lizard brain. It's what it allows us to survive by. And this whole genre is built around that. And so you can be in the safest suburban town in the world and still become absolutely terrified of just a shot of an empty bed and a shadow underneath. And that's it. They're like, oh shit. What's under that bed? <laughs> What's in that shadow? And if the music is pumping behind you, the hair starts raising, your bumps come out on your skin, you just start getting chills and you're terrified. And that's, that's being a human. That is, it's like a, a crash course. It's like a, a drug injection into your lizard brain. Every good horror film. <laughs> it's so much fun. And to understand why the films are made, what inspired them what was happening in the world around them and to hear it from the lips of those that you've loved watching acting and directing and writing i mean it doesn't get better it's so good so check it out if you haven't ever seen it before and if you saw season one it's another season people and it's good it's a lot of goodness <laughs> it actually makes me want to go buy um the first black and white godzilla film because they were talking about monsters, and I've always loved the black and white King Kong, the original 30s version of it, more than any of the others. Um, it's, there's something about it. It speaks to the African-American experience. It speaks to the way human beings treat the other, whatever that other happens to be in the context of society in a given time. Um, it's fascinating. But then they did the exact same thing, exploration with Godzilla, which was completely new to me. And how the influence that that film had on the people of Japan. And it's all because of World War II. I mean, it's just fascinating stuff. Uh, you got to check it out. It's good.
All right. That's what I want to talk about. And that's really all I have for today. Just wanted to share a couple things that I've been thinking and a little couple things that I've been appreciating lately. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, and that's going to do it for this episode of Nine Cents. If you, uh, you can view past episodes of different satanic projects that I've uh, produced on reverendcampbell.com. If you appreciate what I do produce, like the video, subscribe to the channel, and sign up to the email list if you haven't already. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about Satanism or the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And for fuck's sake, read the Satanic Bible. Even if you've read it before, read it again. It'll do you good. Till next week. Hail Satan.